Okay, I'm going to read uh, some scriptures this morning. And I'm going to start with Philippians, the third chapter. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 says, Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Notice what it says. It says rejoice in the Lord. And that speaks of our position entering into our experience. We rejoice in the Lord. Then he said this, to write the same things to you. He had to constantly repeat these truths, just like we need to have them constantly repeated to us. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, and it shouldn't be. It's, it should never be it should never be grievous for a pastor teacher to constantly repeat these things because he not only needs the repetition in a fresh way in growing in, in the light in Proverbs 4 and verse 18 and Psalm 36 and verse 9 to grow in them, but it wouldn't be grievous because there's no grievance. There's nothing grievous in functioning in the love of God in those truths. So he said, to me, indeed, it's not grievous, but for you, it is what? It is safe. It is safe. There's safety for the believer because we've never arrived and we never know anything like we ought to. And to think that we do would be obviously deception. And in that deception, in, in Revelation 12, verse 9, the enemy would use us to accuse so if I'm deceived in a particular area in the scriptures, if I'm deceived, and remember deception is, I think I know something, and in reality I don't. When we live in deception, in any truth in the scriptures, that leads to denial. That denial will always express itself in deception through an accusation. And that accusation will be directly against Christ, his person and the work that he has accomplished. And this is what's being brought out here. It's safe. There's safety in these things being constantly said. We never, no one, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 3, no one ever has arrived at the end of any portion of Scripture. We, none of us have. Now, there is growth, as we brought out in a local assembly in 1 John 2, 12 to 14. There are babes. There are young men and they're spiritual dads. They can be spiritual dads in terms of age that still function like babes or like young men because they don't know continually truth. Continually truth. Verse 2 of Philippians 3 says, Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. That's what a dog is in this sense. A dog is it's an evil worker. What do we mean by that? Satan, as we've, has been brought out in the scriptures, Satan, in his desire, in Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, to be like the Most High, is an angel of light in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14. And if he can deceive Christians, men, of things that aren't true, or less than who Christ is and what he's accomplished, making them think that they have to do something and add to it, they become his ministers in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 15. To be a minister outside of Christ, we can only function as believers as in the flesh, and the flesh is just pride. It's just pride. Thinking that we know enough, we've come to the end of something that we know enough, and that we don't need to be continually taught. So, to beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. The concision here is those legalistic preachers. 
still preaching the law like it is to this very day. When we bring out terms like covenant theology and lordship salvation, two huge things today that are going on in our particular age period where we are right now, and that age began with what we're in in Acts, the second chapter, their Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, being sent down as the fulfillment of the promise that Christ promised in John 14 and verse 16 to realize it in verse 17. Have that Holy Spirit in us. Nowhere in all the scriptures until Acts the second chapter in this dispensation of grace, the church age, did God the Holy Spirit ever indwell anyone in the old covenant. He rested on them. He never dwelt in them. The necessity for that to happen was that Christ would be rejected in John 1.11. He would be rejected, but to all that would receive him in John 1.12, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even them that would believe on his name. That's the parenthesis, John 1.12. That's the church age, the dispensation of grace. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision, the legalists. For we are the circumcision. In other words, we're the true circumcision. We have been truly circumcised. How? Through the cross. The cross is that thing that has cut off everything about the old. Every single thing about us. That's brought out in Romans, the sixth chapter, in those first six verses. You can read it all the way to the 14th, and there's a beautiful correlation there. Then all of those sins are paid for and dealt with, there'd be no more wrath in John 3, verse 36. We're not under wrath in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 9. We're not under wrath. But the concision, those that of the false circumcision, which they still live in the old, the old man, and that's what the enemy so deeply desires for the believer, is to have truths, some truth, some truth about who they are in Christ and who Christ is in them, but to mix the self-life with it. To mix fallen, earthly, fallen, ruined thoughts of the old man, to mix them with the new and bring them into the new creation, creature life that we are in Christ. And that's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 16, no, no man after the flesh. What was the law dealing with? The whole time, who did he give the law to? In Exodus 19, verse 8, in Exodus 24 and verse 3, he gave it to those people that were in the flesh, and he was teaching them. And in Romans 7, verse 12, that the law really is holy, just, and good. But then was that which was good made death to me? No. Are, are evil? No. God forbid. It was teaching them, like it will still teach the believer today. Everything is finished in Christ in John 19, verse 30. And by the way, grace never, God never gives grace for us to live in sin. That's Romans chapter 6 and verses 1 and 15. In Romans 3 and verse 8, God forbid that I should do evil that good may abound. Makes no sense whatsoever. It just doesn't. And so when it says that we are the true circumcision, that's the cross that's cut off the old. We're not to know any man after the flesh. The only way I could know anything today as a believer in Christ, to know any other Christian in Christ after the flesh, I would have to go back to the old legalism and law, which is just, just trying to use the law 
Those Ten Commandments in Exodus 23 to 17 were those 613 statutes and ordinances. And in James 2.10, if you offend in one point, you're guilty of all. To go back to that is to lower Christ experientially. And to think that I now have to make him Lord over my life, which is impossible because he's Lord already. He is preeminent. Long before he ever put on humanity, the pre-incarnate Christ, we see in, in Isaiah the sixth chapter, he's high and lifted up. In six, one and two, he's high and lifted up. He has preeminence, all preeminence in Colossians 1 and verse 18. So for we, in Philippians 3, verse 3, we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit. Now, can I function in the flesh and still be available for the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to take the things of Christ that are ours, that have been made ours in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 by Christ himself? Can I mix my flesh with it? Never. Can't be done would never be done. We worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. Not a thing about ourselves. It all has to do with Him. And we have no confidence, what? In the flesh. What does the law bring out? It brings out the fleshly, fallen, ruined nature. Now, for us who are in Christ, in Romans the 8th chapter, therefore, now... All of us that are in Christ, there's no condemnation, period. There is no condemnation for us, none, zero. Now, we have the flesh that's in us in Romans 8, verse 9, but we are not of it. That's why we stress the little words in and of, so consistently by God's grace. The flesh is in us, but we're no longer of it. But can we still function in experience of that flesh? And we can. That keeps the spirit the Holy Spirit, from taking the things of Christ and showing them unto me. And that may mean I could even declare the truths that are true about who Christ is and what he's accomplished by himself. But to do so apart with a heart and a will submitted to God, I only do it in the flesh. It's just declarative and it is not at all experiential. Not at all. So we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, Paul, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, we have to remember this is the Holy Spirit that's recording this about Paul. It is not Paul himself, separate from the Holy Spirit. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if I don't have confidence in Christ, in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, in verse 35, if I don't have confidence in him, where does my confidence go to? the flesh. Instantly, legalism. Instantly. Now, I have to do something. I have to add to Christ. Read Deuteronomy 4 and verse 2. Read Deuteronomy 12 and verse 32. Read Proverbs 30 and verse 6. Read Revelations 22, 18 and 19. Can you add anything to what Christ has already finished? Can you take away? Who tries to do that? Who tries to do those things? What was he? Well, and it's the enemy, Satan, and it started right in the garden, Genesis 3, 1 to 6. He started to take away. He wanted to take away. 
That's just what covenant theology and lordship salvation does even to this moment that we are in. And it is rampant in Christianity, especially in our particular area here. Now, though I may, I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinks that he have where he might trust in the flesh, I the more. You know what he's saying here? We've brought this out. Remember where Paul, when he finally met Christ on the road to Damascus in Acts, the ninth chapter, in those first six verses, when he finally called him Lord, when he said, Lord, and no man can say Lord except he be born again, except he's totally born again. So when he said Lord back then in Acts 1, Acts 9, 1 through 6, he instantly received Christ as his Savior. Instantly. And so we see that. And from that whole time, that whole time, he, he no longer walked in the confidence of the flesh. But he said, if you think that you can do that, remember, he said in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9, he said, in one sense, speaking of the flesh, that he wasn't of anymore, but was still in him. Some would teach that in the false lying teaching of one naturism that once you receive Christ, you no longer have flesh. It's all, it's just Christ. Well, I don't know what they do with Romans, the seventh chapter. I can tell you what they do. They make it that person in an unsaved state. (laughs) That's what they do. And they have to skip over chapter three of Romans, chapter four of Romans, chapter five of Romans, chapter six of Romans to somehow come up in between those first 39 verses in Romans, the 8th chapter, in between, make it an unsaved state. Does it make any sense in the correlation and the contents, the context of thinking? It doesn't make a bit of sense. But he is saying this, that I was not qualified to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. <laughs> that was his whole call. Read Acts, the 8th chapter. Read Acts, the ninth chapter. He would ruin the church. He, he spoke about it when he, fought, when he faced those that were in power in Rome about his old life. He spoke about it all, all in the book of Acts, specifically 22, the 22nd chapter, the 26th chapter, and on and on it goes. He did those things. He spoke them. But he said that I am not qualified to be called, I am. Notice what he's saying? I am not qualified. In other words, his qualifications didn't have anything to do with himself. We read that in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. And you can look at it, starting at verse 20 and all the way down to the end of the chapter. We see the qualifications of a call of anyone, especially an under-shepherd. We see it. Not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise are called, but God has called what the world considers to be foolish. So, again, he said, I'm not qualified to be called an apostle in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, because I persecuted the church. But, and that word but there in 1 Corinthians 15, and, and now 9 and 10, but is a contrasting conjunction. But I'm separated. Here's the contrast. This is who I was in the flesh. Now look at who I am. Under Christ's headship is my head. In Colossians 1 and verse 18, and in Colossians 2 and verse 19, he's now Paul's head. Paul's not thinking in his own head under the atmosphere, under the enemy. He's now thinking with Christ. He says, but, but is a separation and a contrast. 
but I am what I am by the whole charis, the grace, no other, the grace of God. And I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but Christ, yet not I. He said that in the beginning of his life, middle to the beginning to the middle. Then he said in Ephesians 3.8, when he was teaching God, Christ had given him the heavenly truth about who we are in Christ as his heavenly people, the church, not as his earthly people, Israel, and not mixing, mixing kingdom teaching in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke at all, with just hints of the, of the church in, in the epistle, in the, uh, the book of John. But he made it very, very clear, very, very clear that he said, I am the less than the least of all the saints in Ephesians 3 and verse 8 in terms of his old life. <laughs> but then he said in 1 Timothy 1.15, and he knows he's going home to be with the Lord. He knows Nero's axe is going to come down and separate his head from his body, and he, he says it. We can see it beautifully in first, especially in the second epistle of Timothy. Uh, and when that happened, it would be his life would be like a drink offering poured out to Christ. He said, I am the chief of sinners. That's what he's saying when he said in Philippians 3 and verse 4, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man think he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I'm more religious. Did you know that in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 3 it says this, that if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Can a Christian be lost if he doesn't know the truth? If he's trying to figure it out on his own? Wants to do it on his own. Don't, doesn't want to function in God's order. Wow. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. In whom, in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 4, in whom the God of this world has blinded, listen, hardened the hearts of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine in and unto them. When it says that in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he's speaking this. He is the religious God of this world system. That's what you hear with covenant theology, worship, salvation, and a plethora of other things. That's what you hear. It is the God of this world has hardened the hearts of them which believe not. He which refused to believe things. We have far more than those that the truth that they had in the Reformation period. We have far, far more than they, than they had. But when you don't go beyond that into the growth truths, positional truths in Christ, you stuck. You're stuck in the Reformation. And to hear the newness of what's ours in Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it's something that you struggle and fight against, even though it is yours and it's for you. Now, verse 5 of Philippians 3, it says, circumcised the eighth day. Notice that. He said, I am circumcised the eighth day to the Jews. That's when they, when they had a, their, when a baby was born after, and a male, after eight days he was to be circumcised. That's a picture of us being circumcised from the flesh, relying on it in any way, in any way, because it interferes and gets in the way of a proper operation in the way certain things were designed even in the physical sense, much more in the spiritual sense. Now, 
circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. It's touching the law, having everything to do with the law. He was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. Concerning zeal, look what he said. Concerning zeal of covenant theology and lordship salvation. Listen to what it says. Concerning, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Could I do that in ignorance? Yes. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless? <laughs> Think there's something wrong there? How would he be blameless if he couldn't even keep it? Who's the only one that ever kept it? Jesus made it clear he did in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. And for us as believers in him, in Romans 10 and verse 4, Christ is the end of the law. Covenant theology. Lordship salvation. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to them who believe. To them that hear right, receive and obey. Now, Verse 7, but what things were gained to me, those things I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. He didn't make him Lord of his life. Christ was Lord, and when I submit to him, I experience his, his rule, his actual lordship, over me in a very gracious, loving, merciful way is brought out in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. We have this merciful and faithful high priest that we can flee to and run to at any time we need to, right in the nick of time. So, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him. Listen to what it says, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know who? Him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable in growth because remember, conformable unto his death simply means this, that he that died once, in Romans 6, verse 9, dies no more. What does that mean? That means that I, when I received Christ, I not, only, I not only recognized and agreed that he not only died for me, but he died as me and paid for all my sins. And I am being made conformable unto that. He's bringing the increase in John 3.30 as I'm decreased in the flesh. I already have the increase. Every single Christian has it. Even to those when they hear new things and they've been deceived like any of us can be. They've been deceived and been taught wrong things. And been taught wrong things. Think it. Think about the, the uh, Saul the whole time. He thought he was right based upon the law and his understanding of at that, at that time what he believed to be the word of God. But who was in control of his life? And he met Christ and his whole bottom fell out. 
He had to be brought to the point of helplessness and hopelessness in himself. And in every single doctrinal truth, every cardinal truth, some would say the secondary truths, I just, the whole word of God is pure in Proverbs 30, verse 5. It's all God-breathed in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. It's all pure. But we need to have that foundation, foundational truths to which, to which they didn't go on in the Reformation period. They didn't go on. They stopped there. They stopped at salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. But they went right back into the works program, just like Christianity today, just like Roman Catholicism, and just like the overwhelming majority of what is called Protestantism. Well, this brings us to this. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law. Is there any righteousness of the law apart from Christ? Is there? It's called rag, filthy rag righteousness in Isaiah 64 and verse 6. But that which is through the faith, the absolute dependence, and when it says of Christ, it means everything about us is constituted outside of us. Christ is our object. And if he's not my object in my experience, I become very subjective. And when I'm subjective, then I think I must do something to add what Christ has already finished. And by doing so, I lower Christ. Oh, I wish. And God knows. (laughs) The righteousness... through the faith of Christ in Philippians 3, 9, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Man has nothing to do with it. He doesn't produce fruit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit who takes the things of Christ in John 16, 13 and 14 and shows them unto us. But what if I'm not taught? What if I'm taught the wrong things? Well, That I may know him, that I may know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death, that positional truth being worked into my experience. And as I decrease, I keep seeing more and more this great increase. And by the way, we'll never come to the end of the increase that we have for all eternity, because in Ephesians 3 and verse 19, it says to know the love of God that passes knowledge. Isn't that awesome? It's amazing. If, in Philippians 3, 11, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Oh boy. Boy, does he have to teach us that, doesn't he? The resurrection is, is for all those that died in Christ through receiving him as their Savior. And by any means he has to do that. The things that he has to use in believers' lives to bring them to this reality where his love through his grace has already placed them. And it's not about them doing. The doing must cease. Deuteronomy 4, 2, 1 and 2. It's not doing, it's receiving. As many as would receive him and what he did in John 1, 12. That's the dispensation of grace, the church age. That's what it is. Very clearly, completely, diametrically opposed to Judaism, which has to do with the earth and millennial reign of Christ, to which he has not even yet done and come to. And now it's all about the church age, this dispensation. 
this parenthesis. It's the great parenthesis. So if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Do you know what that means, trying to attain? It means I'm going to try and figure it out myself. And, what, and what's the place that I need to come to constantly? That I don't know it apart from submission to God, submission and understanding the things of Christ, and even understanding the things of Christ, it's still going to take the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, for me to experience them. What makes me think I can continue in the truth? And think that I've come to the end of it and still don't need to be submitted to Christ so that the Holy Spirit can make it be a beautiful experience in my proper image. And boy, when you don't have these things, when, when you're taught covenant theology, lordship, salvation, annihilationism, universalism, and every other kind of ism that there is, I don't function in a proper image. It leaves me trying to do something to correct it. When it's already dead, the old is dead, we've already been made perfect in Christ. Already. Not as though I already attained. He's talking about experience. We have all that in our position in this dispensation of grace, the church age. Not as, as if I had already attained. Either or already completely mature, perfect. This is an apostle speaking this. Christ was his pastor teacher. But I follow after. What are we following after if it's not Christ, his finished work, what he's accomplished? Then I follow men under the prince and power of the air, Satan, again, in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, and then his ministers in verse 15, thinking that I can be made like God apart from God. But I follow after that I may also apprehend that for which... I also, I am apprehended of Jesus Christ. I have already, he's already captured me in Romans 8, verse 37. He's made me more than a conqueror. I'm already a prisoner of the Lord in Ephesians 3, verse 1, and Ephesians 4, verse 1. I'm no longer a slave or a prisoner of, a, of sin in John 8, verse 34. And even when I do sin, it's no longer I in Romans 7, 17 and 20 that do it, but it's that sin nature that dwells in me that tries to still express itself in the old and convince me, the enemy using it to convince me, this is who you are. And it's not. And that goes into confession in 1 John 1, 9. We confess who we truly are in Christ. Is there a godly sorrow for these sins? Absolutely. Does God give me grace to continue in sin and will bypass it? Never. Never, ever. Never. Sin was so evil in God's sight, the only answer that it could be would be the grace and truth of his son in John 1.14 when he would have to put on humanity and become in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 that sin sacrifice for sin. We are made the righteousness of God. We are made the righteousness of God in him. We don't make ourselves righteous. He did it. We don't make him Lord. He's already Lord. He's already Lord. I don't make him do anything. And the only way I try to do that is in the flesh. And if you, if you look at Philippians, the third chapter, that was the height of the religious guy. You know, God has made it very clear by giving Paul to us as an apostle for the church. And what he's saying, and I used to think, and I brought this out before in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Ephesians 3, 8, and, and 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15, I used to think, oh, look how humble this man is. <laughs> wow. And in every instance, it was God, the Holy Spirit, telling, writing that about him. 
To condemn him or accuse him? No, to show him how far God's love and grace has gone down to the lowest, very vilest. And what he was saying is, and the worst kind of pride that there is, by the way, I believe so with all my heart, is, is religious pride. Religious pride. And he was the height of it. He was saying, you can't go higher in terms of how low <laughs> pride can be in a religious man. You can't out him. No one can. But look what grace can do when it gets a hold of an individual. That's what he's bringing here. He said, not as though I had already attained, we're already complete, but I follow after. That, that I follow after. I need these things constantly repeated to me. How many times do we have to repeat things to children before they finally get it? Because, you know, we are, when we deal with children, you know, and we should know in our own relationship with God, when we function in the flesh and in the natural, what are we functioning in? A lie. In Psalm 58, verse 3, as soon as they're born, they come out of the womb speaking lies. You don't teach them to lie. They've got that nature. But that's a nature that likes to take the things of Christ and make it theirs to help God. I don't see any help in the garden in Genesis 3 other than Christ. And watch what he did there. That's the pre-incarnate Christ that came and taught them about what he himself would do when he would put on humanity and come 4,000 years into the future in Galatians, the fourth chapter and the fourth verse, made of a woman and made under the law to redeem them that were under the law because they never could do it. And no one can. No one has to because Christ has already done it. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. Listen, forgetting those things are behind are not the negative things. They're the positive truths. The foundation's laid. Now let's build an edification house. Let the word of Christ continue to dwell in you in Colossians 3, verse 16, on this foundation in Matthew 16, 18, that Christ himself is. <laughs> and let no man, let every man be careful how he builds thereon. Good gracious. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 and 11. We need to be very careful to think I understand certain things at a young age and think I've already come to the end of the conclusion of them. It's just nothing more, and I think a lot of times it can be ignorance that hasn't been proven yet. But hopefully God can get a hold of ignorance before the only thing ignorance can do when it's not taught is enter into what? Rebellion in, in some sort. In sin. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth unto those things that are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the what? The high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You see that anywhere in the Psalms? You see that any, in Christ? Do you see that anywhere in the Old Covenant? No, he was their Messiah, prophet, priest, and king who would rule and reign over him. And by the way, they rejected him in John 1.11, and that's what formed the great parenthesis where we are right now, the dispensation of grace, the church age. Now, we're going to wrap this up. Let us, verse 15 of Philippians 3, let us, all of those that are in Christ, therefore, as, as, as be mature, not little babies, be thus minded, and if in any other thing 
you be otherwise minded than the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.16. Do you know when it says in 1 Corinthians 2.16 it's the mind of Christ? To, for the believer to experience, not just declare, but to experience the mind of Christ, he must have in 1 Corinthians 2.10 the Holy Spirit who will be his teacher. And if you don't have that, in the, in the Holy Spirit, through a gift in Ephesians 4, 8 to 11. That's his order and it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed to this moment. Let us, therefore, as many as be mature, be thus minded. If any, if any otherwise minded, God will reveal even this unto you. See? We, thank God, we have, all of us, we have this truth. But, and it's in Christ. Thank God that his wrath is appeased. The church does not go through the tribulation period. There is no weeping and gnashing of teeth in Matthew, the 13th chapter, and brought out in the 25th chapter. For those that were believers, but they didn't function right in obedience, and now they have to enter into some punishment. Christ took that on Calvary. He finished in John 19, verse 30, the work. His will was to do, his meat, his very sustenance was to do the will of him, his father, and to finish the work in John 4, verse 34, and finish it, he did. He didn't leave a single thing undone. And furthermore, he did far more than fulfill the law. He brought us to a height that only he could bring us to. His wrath is appeased for the believer. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, John 3 and verse 36. His wrath is appeased. It is righteously dealt with by Christ, by the one and only sacrifice that Christ is in 2 Corinthians 5 and, and 21. And this brings out where we'll close. We have been expiated. What does that mean? To expiate. And we get this word expiate. From the Latin word expio, it's from X, E, X, and P, O, P, I, O. It means to worship and to atone or to bring in reconciliation. We're not being reconciled to God. Positionally, we have been reconciled. We have the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ put to our account, imputed, logizomai. It's been put to our account. But how do I function in it? If it's not imparted to me, there has to be a process of growth and preaching and teaching in a local assembly to have that that's been put to my account through imputation, through right preaching and teaching by the power of the Holy Spirit through a gifted man. And I do say amen because pastors are men. Jeremiah 3 and verse 15, Ephesians 4 and verse 11. It's masculine singular. It never involves a woman at any other time ever. All through the scriptures ever, in its proper sequence. But we've been expiated. The primary sense is to appease. Has God been appeased by what Christ has accomplished, by only what he could do for those that are in Christ? Yes. To atone for, to make satisfaction for. That's what it means, to expiate. That's already happened, folks. And then we function 
as we give our will over and submit and experience the fruit that is ours in Christ as individuals that he, through the cross, made ours in Isaiah 53 and verse 11. And it's called the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And the reason it says that is because the Holy Spirit takes the things of Christ. God, the Holy Spirit, takes the things of God, the Son, that the Father has given through his Son and makes them real and experiential for us. They're not just a declarative statement we think we come to the end of. So as we wrap it up, it means to make satisfaction for, to extinguish the guilt of a crime. By what? Subsequent acts of worship. That's what Christ did. And that's what he was saying in John 8, verse 29, in Romans 15, verse 3. He constantly did those things that pleased the Father. He was in a constant spirit of worship in his humanity. By which the obligation to punish the crime is canceled. That's brought out in Colossians, the second chapter, in verses 14 and 15, based upon 10 through 13 in that particular chapter of Colossians 2. It's canceled. To expiate guilt, to expiate crime, is to perform some act which is supposed to purify the person guilty. And the primary sense of that act is peace. Is Christ our peace in Ephesians 2.14? Do we have peace? Should we let it? Rule and reign over us in Philippians 4 and verse 7 and Isaiah 26 and verse 3? And in Isaiah 32 and verse 17? Yes. Yes. It's an act which is accepted. And that's why you and I are accepted in Christ, his beloved, in Ephesians 1, 6. And it's brought out beautifully in Colossians chapter 1. He's made us meet, qualified us to be children, to walk in the light in 1, 12 because we've been transliterated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. That's Colossians 1 and verse 13. Boy, we need these truths so we can grow up in Him. In Ephesians 4, verse 15. Yeah, speak the truth in love so that we can grow up in Him. And it's, God has the time for us as believers to actually grow up, to start feeding and develop spiritual teeth so that we can chew things and not just go by others in their milky <laughs> teachings. Well, it's an act which is, is and an act that's accepted by the offended party. And that goes into God's love and justice. It's a satisfaction for the injury that was caused against the holiness, integrity, and righteousness and purity of God Himself. That's what it is. It's an act by which his wrath is appeased. We don't go, we don't have to do anything else. It's already been done. There's no weeping and gnashing of teeth for the church at all. As covenant theology and lordship salvation will teach. We're in Christ, thank God. The book of Ephesians, we're in him. We have a purged conscience it's purged of all the guilt and condemnation in Hebrews 10 too, so that we don't function in a defiled conscience. We don't function that way in a defiled conscience. Thank God for that. Can Christians function in their experience and have a defiled conscience? Yes, because it's not the equal of their position in Christ. The, the things that are being taught this morning, folks, 
are the ABC foundations of Christianity. It's not, some think they're deeper things. These seem to be the deeper things. They're not. They're foundational. Before you build a house, before you're edified, before you can dwell in safety, before you have the roof of his love covering you and the foundation under you supporting you, you can't build a house and be edified in a proper image. We just can't be. And so we thank God we have this purge conscience because we have his forgiveness that he has made ours by his effort alone. Period has to do with that. The guilt is done away and the obligation to punish the crime has been canceled. We have been reconciled. So when you see that word atonement, the correct word in the Greek and we'll get into it in different times is reconciliation. We've received the reconciliation. It is reconciliation goes into the satisfaction of God himself. It goes into understanding the doctrine of propitiation. The doctrine of substitution and thereby the doctrine of reconciliation. Expiation, as we close this morning, has to do with our sins. In 1 John 2, 1 and 2, they're dealt with. And is made only by the obedience and sufferings that Christ alone himself experienced in our place. No wailing and gnashing of teeth for any believer in Christ. To try and do that is to take kingdom teaching in Matthew the 13th chapter and Matthew the 25th chapter and bring it over into earthly truth, millennial reign truth, bring it over into this dispensation of grace, the church age, and we are a heavenly people. The law was for the Jews. All that will be reenacted, all those sacrifices, with Christ sitting on a literal throne in Jerusalem with you and I ruling and reigning with him over all the nations. Satisfaction. Satisfaction. And that's why he's, it's called the vicarious atonement. The, expi, the expiation the, or the expiatory vicarious reconciliation. And I'll close with this. Vicarious, it's a Latin term, but in understanding the Greek and the language that is in the scriptures, it means to be deputed. It means delegated. Christ was delegated by the authority of God the Father himself to be our only authority because he is the one that has that vicarious power and authority, him and him only. So we teach a pastor is never your authority. He teaches the authority of Christ, but he's never your authority. Never. In any place in all the scriptures. It's his vicarious power and authority. And vicarious simply means one who acts for another. We see that in Romans 8, 2 and 3. Filling the place of another. That's what vicarious, that's what Christ did. He filled the place of us. He substituted. He was our substitute in the place of us. And he had vicarious suffering. And vicarious simply means one who suffers in the place of another. Isn't that awesome? No weeping and gnashing of teeth for us. We have the finished work. And unfortunately, for even those that don't know this and teach the opposite of it, it's still theirs. And can I, can I do anything against the truth? In 2 Corinthians 13, no, only for it. And we must trust God to teach these things continually. We're, we're commanded, 
those that are pastor teachers are commanded in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 to preach it because the time will come in verses 3 all the way through where they won't take heed to sound teaching. We're in that place right now, all of us. But thank God about who we are in Christ. And we don't think we're any better. We're no better than them, but we are certainly better off. And the better off is theirs just as much as ours. It's just that they've been deceived by an angel of light. But thank God we're going to continue to grow and continue to pray and continue to preach and teach these truths and not use the adversary coming against us because the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, he said, A great and effectual door is open unto me. And there are many adversaries. The enemy wants to use those adversaries to come against us, to cause us to quit and say, what's the, what's the sense? But why do we do it? Why do we search the scriptures? Why do we study? Why does a pastor teacher in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15 study? Because he's to show himself approved unto God. He does it first, not for love of the people, but for love of Jesus Christ. And that love, when it's just Christ, flows to them. And he no longer teaches in the lust of needing to be approved, approbation lust of those people. He no longer needs, he doesn't need those people to prop him up, to build him up. No, he, through Christ and his own experience, truth is to build them up. And that's why even Paul said, in 1 Corinthians 4 9. I, I look at it. He, he put us as apostles as, as last. As last. So that others can come over into Christ. Father, we thank you for these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.